Hey, I'm Ellen from Jacksonville, Florida. Hey, I'm Cody from Edmonton, Alberta. I'm Eric from Nashville. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. The comedian Moshe Kasher wrote a book about his childhood. The title basically says it all. Kasher in the Rye, the true tale of a white boy from Oakland who became a drug addict, criminal, mental patient, and then turned 16. Now, I don't think I need to tell you that Moshe was kind of a problem child in school. His mother was deaf, and he was not ashamed to take advantage of that fact. I would be called into a parent-teacher conference, but my mom, of course, is deaf, so she needed some translation. But the school system didn't think that there was a flaw in the plan of just asking the subject of the parent-teacher conference to also translate the information to the parent, who, <laughs> as if I didn't have a vested interest in not seeming like a, a huge jerk. So they would say something. You can't just be like, well, your son's great. And we love him very much because there would there'd be an obvious problem there. So I would sort of shade it. You know, they would say your son is uh, becoming a severe behavioral problem and has been absent in school 30 percent of the classes this year. And I would translate something like we think your son is having a few emotional problems. Nothing severe, nothing too much. And he's 30% better than last year or whatever, you know. Eventually that crumbled and they realized what I was doing. And I got to tell you, that story barely scratches the surface. It's Bullseye. <laughs> this week, comedian Moshe Kasher talks about his off-the-charts crazy childhood. The rapper Latif the Truth Speaker reveals how a jazz scat changed his life. It's like an underground rap song. And I talk to the directors of the sports documentary Undefeated, now on DVD. It won an Oscar. It made me cry. And NPR sports reporter Mike Pesca says it's better than hoop dreams. All that and more coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. Every week on Bullseye, we're joined by some of our favorite culture critics to point you to some of the best stuff in contemporary culture. This week, we're talking about comics with Boing Boing Comics columnist Brian Heater and Alex Zalbin from MTV Geek. Hey, guys. Hey, Jesse. Hey, how are you? I'm good. Brian, I want to start with your recommendation, a book from 2005 by the artist Seth called Wimbledon Green. This is a book... It sounds like it takes the world of comics and invests them with a little bit of the uh, kind of panache of the subjects that are often covered in comics. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it's a story about a, a globe-trotting comics collector, this kind of rotund Scrooge McDuck character who literally uh, flies across the world. He's got arch nemeses and things like that, and he he, he travels around trying to find uh, trying to find the great lost comics. It, it started off as a, a, a sketchbook exercise, and I really I think it turned into one of his just really most joyful comics. It has a really distinctive and lovely aesthetic. Maybe you could describe Seth's style in the book. This really kind of takes that really sort of basic, sketchy style 
um, and breaks it down into a comic. It's a, it's a lot of really small panels as well, so there's tends to be really kind of one uh, one piece of dialogue per them. And really, in that format, it works really well because it ends up being a lot of uh, interviews. It's kind of in a way, it's kind of a goofy documentary style where you see piece by piece interviews with different characters. Alex, let's talk about your recommendation. Remind Volume 1 by Jason Brubaker. Uh, Jason Brubaker is a guy who is not a full-time comics maker. He actually works uh, as an artist at DreamWorks, um, presumably like drawing guys for the Ice Age movies or something. (laughs) So Jason Brubaker, he works during the day at DreamWorks Animation in visual development. He does storyboards for a number of movies. At night, as a labor of love, he's been working on this book, Remind, for years at this point. It's the story of this girl named Sonia uh, and her cat, Vittles, who disappears into the water and comes back talking. Uh, And it ends up dealing with some very big themes and having a very lived-in world. And people responded to it, I think, in exactly the right way. You know, I didn't know what I was getting into when I read it. And I completely fell in love with the book by the end. Alex Zalbin from MTV Geek recommends Remind Volume 1 by Jason Brubaker. Brian Heater, comics columnist for Boing Boing, recommends Wimbledon Green by Seth. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Jesse. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Moshe Kasher. We spoke last year about his, uh, frankly, jaw-dropping memoir called Kasher in the Rye. It's out in paperback next week. But before our interview, I want to give you a feeling for his stand-up. Here's a clip of Moshe performing on Late Night with Jimmy Fallon. Nice to be here. Nice to be among the beautiful people. I see you. Thanks. Yeah, me too. I see a lot of scary stuff out on the road. I travel a lot for comedy. I, I, I was in an airport recently. You ever, you ever see somebody and you're just like, oh, so you're what's wrong with everything in the world. I saw a woman eating a, a king-size snicker bar by scooping out the ice cream, a king-size snicker ice cream bar by scooping it out with a bag of Fritos scoops that she had just kind of hoisted here like a feed bag on her belt, just scooping and sucking, scooping and sucking. And I couldn't look away, you know, because it was like a thousand railroad trains colliding again and again and again. And you're not supposed to maintain prolonged eye contact with a person with this look on your face. It's like, yeah, you're not supposed to do that. But I couldn't look away. I wanted to like videotape what she was doing, not to like put it up on YouTube and humiliate her. Just so that in like 18 years when she looks down at her destroyed body and is like, what happened? I'll pop out of a bush like, that's what happened. So maybe arrogant isn't quite the best word to describe Moshe Kasher's stage persona as a stand-up comedian. Maybe it's brash. Um, I I first saw him perform stand-up comedy in Oakland five or eight years ago. And at the time, I thought it must just be the defense mechanism of a skinny Jewish hipster standing in front of a crowd of a hundred or so uh, mixed-race people in the East Bay, in the Bay Area, who might just be a, a little bit ambivalent about a skinny Jewish guy telling jokes at them. When we became friends, I learned that Moshe grew up in Oakland going to public school, and I figured that that brashness was just a white kid's defense. Then I read Moshe's memoir, Casher in the Rye, and I learned that it was a defense for so much more stuff. 
Kasher's book is the story of growing up a skinny Jewish kid in a black neighborhood, but it's also the story of growing up with two deaf parents who divorced when he was a toddler, the story of commuting between a hippie mom on welfare in Oakland and an Orthodox Jewish father in Brooklyn, the story of drug and alcohol addiction, a mental hospital, a, an accusation of rape, a thousand petty crimes, dropouts from an almost uncountable number of uh, middle and high schools, and it only covers Moshe's life up until age 15 or so. Um, so you could see how he might need to be funny and brash as a defense mechanism. Um, Moshe, uh, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks. What an introduction. Thanks for having me. I Look, Moshe, it's become fashionable to say this. And uh, perhaps at this point it's even unfashionable. But I really don't think there's any way, to, other way to put this. I read this book, and my reaction was, "Whoa, that's <laughs> cray." <laughs> it is cray, indeed. It is cray, and that was going to be the title of the book originally. That <laughs> cray by Moshe Kasher. Uh, it was, cray, I mean, it was cray to live. I um, <laughs> um, so gosh, I think the only way to talk about this situation is um just to take it one step at a time and um, just talk about what it's like to have two deaf parents when you're hearing, which you are, we should explain. Yeah, this is why I can respond so uh, cleverly to all of your questions because I'm able to instantly hear them. Yeah, well, I mean, you could be you could be reading my lips. That's true, except it, you have a microphone in front of them. That's true. Um, tell me, do you, do you remember when you realized that, like, for example, just when you realized that other people's parents weren't deaf? The first memory I felt of difference was when my mom, when I finally developed enough of a shame mechanism to be embarrassed by my mom's speaking voice. And um, it, I, it hadn't occurred to me to be embarrassed until the day that it did occur to me. And uh, I lived my whole life at that point just cringing that my mom would speak in public and also cringing at my own reaction to my own mom. You know, she talks like, you know, a deaf a sort of mangled banshee, you know, and uh, there is I mean, it's just the reality of the situation. But I, I remember always trying to speak for my mom, not because she couldn't deal with social interactions on her own but because really i was trying to hide from this kind of like situation that i you know how how old are we talking about Uh, this is probably five years old i mean that's like that's like really young to have that feeling of being embarrassed by your parents i think well right and maybe i got yeah maybe i did get a a taste of uh, parental shame quicker than other people because yeah I, I i don't remember thinking oh no my mom's deaf i remember thinking oh no my mom talks like that and nobody else seems to and then i had the uh, my dad like you said was an orthodox jew and when he would come visit us in oakland i remember being super ashamed of the yarmulke that he would force us to wear in oakland and uh i, I think the shame is sort of the the hidden thread that's sort of woven throughout everything you know i was ramping up with shame and this is in this is just the, the sort of foundation you know, of shame that I had, but I had everything to be embarrassed about. What were the circumstances of your folks splitting up? Well, my mom met my dad at some sort of deaf Olympic event, but they moved in together immediately, and it was very quickly became a very toxic sort of situation where they were in this kind of desperate, this sick love, 
And um, it lasted for a lot longer than the desperate sick love that I have in my life, but long enough to, for my brother to be born and for me to be born. And when we were nine months old, my mom had had enough. You know, she she claims, and I don't. You know, when you're a divorced kid, you get these two. You get these stories right from both sides of your family. You get one one narrative from your father, one narrative from your mother, and you have to kind of weave the two together and decide which thing you believe and which you don't. But um, according to my mom, he was, you know, it was an incredibly abusive household physically and psychologically. And one day she told my dad, okay, we're going on vacation to Oakland, and we never came back. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedian and author Moshe Kasher. His memoir is called Kasher in the Rye, the true tale of a white boy from Oakland who became a drug addict, criminal, mental patient, and then turned 16. We spoke last year. The book's out in paperback next week. You had these two households, and the, what's remarkable about them to me is that, you know, besides the fact that both of your parents were deaf, culturally, these households could not have been more different, and you were traveling between them. Well, that's, yeah, that's true. I, I, my, when, well, basically, when my mom left my dad in order to fill in the gaps of the family that had left him, he plunged into the deepest, the deepest of deep pools of religiosity back in, in Brooklyn. I mean, he was a member of the, Has, uh, the Satmar Hasidic community. When I went back, he had married this woman who was a Satmar Hasid, you know, uh, and what that means is, to those of you that don't know, the Satmar Hasidim are the most weird of all the Hasidic groups. And I'm not, I love those people. I, I, if you can believe it, I identify with them, with them strongly. When I see a Hasid walking down the street, I think, oh, hi, and they do not think the same thing about me, you know what I mean? <laughs> Uh, I would fly home to Brooklyn and I would – he from this reality where my mom is this total hippie. We're eating tempeh and carob and, and you know, the, and we're total hippies on, on welfare and there's all these gatherings back in Oakland. And then I flew back to Brooklyn and my dad would pick us up at the airport and drive us straight to the Hasidic Jewish barber and sort of shove me in front of a fat old pogrom survivor and say, fix this. And he would give me a weird – Hasidic haircut, as close to a Hasidic haircut as was possible for my California bowl cut, throw a yarmulke on me, and then we would travel to Seagate, which is the community that he lived in. Here's how you get to Seagate. If you take the F train in Brooklyn to the last possible stop to Stillwell Avenue, and you get off, you walk past Coney Island, past the projects, past the people of color, through a gate, through a time portal to pre-Nazi Europe... (laughs) (laughs) You will then arrive in Seagate where people are still using horse-drawn buggy and spitting at redheads because they're bad luck. What's remarkable to me about this is that your two parents have both, I mean, they both very clearly had their own tremendous pain in their lives, both in their own relationships busting up and, you know, whatever their own difficulties were, and had gone into these subcultural groups that were for outsiders right. and for refugees. Right. I mean, I describe but my... you're stuck. Oh, I'm... these are very different. Everything is splitting me down the middle. My relationship with men and women is split down the middle. My relationship with Judaism and secularism is split down the middle. My relationship with being black and being white is split down the middle. I mean, you know, I just, everything about me was unclear. I just did not have any clarity at all. And uh, yeah, I describe my dad and his relationship with the Satmar community as he's not like an actual Satmar. He's, he's more like in the mafia. You know, you'll have like a kind of 
a thuggish enforcer, but not a made guy. So my dad was like a kind of not made guy in that community. And he lived in this community because it gave him answers. And that's the beauty of religion is that it gives you answers to all of the questions. So when your family leaves you and you've got this gaping hole, you can turn into this world and say, oh, here are all the answers I've been looking for. And I think he found them, but I definitely didn't. And in fact, you know, in in that community, those answers are often literal answers. I mean, it is like ask a question to a scholar slash rabbi who can give you an answer to that question. In fact, much of the effort, much of, much of the scholarly effort is dedicated towards answering questions. Can I do this? What's the rule to this? Et cetera, et cetera. Interpretations. Right. <clears throat> yeah. And I, I have, there's a passage in the book where I finally, you know, when I was growing up, my dreams, my, if you had asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? I would have said, <clears throat> excuse me. I would have said, um, I want to be a baseball player or a Rebbe. <laughs> those are my two goals. Now, I didn't want to be either of those things. I now realize that they just filled in this kind of deficit in, 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 that I thought that I had. Baseball for my manhood, Rebbe for my soul, and truly I didn't have either. Uh, and I went and I asked the rabbi of this community in, in Seagate. I said to him, we took a ride in his weird uh, Oldsmobile wooden-sided um, station wagon, which everybody in that community, they all drive the same cars. They all have the same outfit. They all have the same glasses. I don't truly know what the, the, what the car thing is about, but apparently <laughs> there was some sort of uh, automotive deal with Oldsmobile. I mean, they are still Jews after all. Um, so anyway. Someone did some numerology and came up with Oldsmobile <laughs> station wagon. That's right. Oldsmobile has the numeric equivalent to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. But I asked the, the guy, uh, the guy I, so I asked the guy, I go, uh, I asked this rabbi, should I be religious? Because I didn't know that that was a taboo question. This is when you're like 12, 13 years old. I'm a, maybe even, yeah, maybe 10 years old. I go, I don't know what to do. I'm split in the middle, and I don't know if I'm going to be religious when I grow up. And he just looked at me. It wasn't cruel. It was baffled. He'd never been asked that question before. Like, he just, he did not answer that question. He sort of drove on in silence for about five minutes and finally was just like, I don't think I can help you with that question. He just didn't get it. He did not get how a person would ask that question. Of course you should be. You'll be killed if you don't. After a break, Moshe Kasher will talk about one of the biggest fights he ever had with his mother. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Every week on Bullseye, you listen into conversations between me and some of the most amazing comics, musicians, and cultural figures we've got. With your ear to the radio, you're pretty close to the action. But I've got to wait to get even closer. Later this year, I'll be setting sail out of Miami with a bursting to the seams lineup of comics and musicians from our show. We'll head to the Caribbean enjoying concerts and comedy shows along the way. John Darneal of the Mountain Goats, Nellie Mackay, Dan Deacon, John Hodgman, Mark Marin, Kristen Shaw, the list goes on from there. If you want to learn more about the Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival, visit our website, boatparty.biz. Yes, really. Boatparty.biz. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedian and author Moshe Kasher. His book is called Kasher in the Rye, the true tale of a white boy from Oakland who became a drug addict, criminal, mental patient, and then turned 16. When we left off, we were talking about Moshe's two lives— 
one with his father in a Hasidic community in Brooklyn and the other with his hippie mother in Oakland. At his Oakland middle school, he struggled to find a place in the social pecking order. The thing is, in Oakland, you know, just like the Letterman jacket and the cool jock in the kind of, uh, you know, 80s, 90s movie of, about high school, you know, those are the cool kids. The cool kids in Oakland, the top rung was, were gangsters and crack dealers. And that was like, whoa, look at those kids. You know, it was like, that was the equivalent of the football quarterback was like, whoa, that's pookie. It's pookie, y'all. And I, I, I had sort of started to ingratiate myself into that upper power click. And uh, then I got sent to Portable 3, which was uh, and which happened very publicly. You know, they co- sort of called me out and said, Mr. Kasher, if you could report to Portable 3. Now, everybody knew what Portable 3 was, which was the special ed portable at the back of the school. And that was the end of my foray into the popular kids class. And it really came to a... Um, a final end when I th- there was this kid Jono that was having a birthday party at uh, Ber- Berkeley Iceland. Did you ever go there? To Iceland? Yeah, sure. I went to Berkeley Iceland. So, so Berkeley Iceland was the highest of heights in the social ins, uh, ins and outs of the middle school community in, in the East Bay. It was this ice skating rink, and this kid Jono was having a birthday party, and all of the cool popular kids were going. I mean, it's a very f- familiar trope. Uh, to a story like this. And I, when they found out that I was in Portable 3, turned their back on me and I was not invited. However, I did find a discarded invitation on the ground in a classroom at Claremont. And I snatched it up and ran home with it in my pocket. And I thought, I stared at it thinking, oh my God, what am I doing? I'm not invited to this party. But nonetheless, I, um, I stole $20 from my mother's purse, my mother's slender welfare purse. I bought Jono a gift, which is to the worst. And I went to Iceland, and I, I crawled out onto the ice, and I started skating with these girls. And I was, like, doing, I was doing pirouettes and stuff because my grandma had sent me to I, uh, figure skating classes. Because as a man-hating woman, I think she wanted to make sure that I wasn't manly in any way. So, <laughs> but I didn't quite, wasn't quite old enough to know that like, cool kids don't do like spins or, whatever, or T-stops or whatever. So I'm skating along, and the kid comes up to me, and he goes, like, what are you doing here? And I was like, what? What? You know that way that people go, what, when they're thinking of a good lie to say, what? And he's like, you didn't, I didn't invite you to my party, dude. And I was like, you did. Look at my invitation. And of course, it's some, like, Sarah Blakely is the name scrawled on the invitation. And I hand him this gift that I got. And he stared down at me. And he looked back up at me. And in that moment, some of the iciness between us melted, you know, uh, no pun intended, you know. He looked at this gift and he realized that I'd gotten him something. He looked me in the eyes and we shared this moment of humanity. And then he said, get the out of my party, you And so I left. And that was the, the last time that I attempted to be a part of the cool kids. And I think maybe the next day or the next week, I found an escape hatch into that group of screw-ups, um, in the back of the school, and I checked out of the entire social strata. I was, go- I was done. I was done. I mean, that being done that you're describing was pretty much a complete doneness. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's no, there was no intermediary. I mean, you pretty much, between the ages of... 13 and 15 were just, just 
I mean, out of control. Yeah, I didn't have a filter. That's the thing. I was thir- I was 12 years old when I first started getting high. Uh, so there was no, I had no adult brain to think, oh, don't, don't mess this up. Don't go down that path. I just thought, oh my God, I found a path. I'm going down it. And very, very quickly, I had, I, it, like you said, I was getting arrested all the time and I was in so much trouble. But I didn't see it as anything other than I'm doing my thing. I'm with my people and all of these adults and these square bears don't understand what I'm about, you know? At the same time that this was happening, um, like your, your, anger at your mom was just off the charts <laughs> i think that's right i don't know where it came from and i don't know where it went because it's not there anymore thank god but that's what would happen when my mom would get in my face about stealing her money or or she would try to stop me from basically wanting to hang out with my friends i would just get seized with this kind of absolutely out of control anger i would i would i i would I remember I, one day I, th- I took my own shoe off and threw it at a window in our house and the window shattered or I would, I would grab the kitchen table and upturn it. I would throw my mom against the wall. I, would, I remember one time um, we were driving along in her bug. Uh, we, have this, we have the 68 bug that my, has been in my family my whole life. And my mom's screaming at me driving and I'm screaming back at her and she's screaming at me and I finally just punched the windshield and the entire windshield just shatters while we're driving. I mean, it's just like spider webs just and uh, I looked at the windshield and I looked at my mom and my anger was very immediately gone when I saw the evidence of what I'd done. But um, my mother's anger had ramped up a bit uh, because I punched her <laughs> windshield out. But that was the kind of stuff I couldn't control myself. I couldn't control that kind of rage. And I think uh, the only thing that I found that would kind of calm me down was was that was drinking a 40 or or smoking a joint. And that's not a good coping mechanism with your anger when you're 13 years old. Is uh, I just got I just got to go get high. Like you literally attacked your mother. Yeah, I did literally attack my mother, because and and my grandma, um, and anybody that would stand. In, and you know, it wasn't just my mom and my grandma that I hated. I hated adults. I hated every adult I'd ever met in my life. I I I, I bristled with rage for adults for what they were doing to me, which was stopping me from doing fun stuff like you know, taking ozone. Um, and my mom, of course, and my grandma were the adults that were most directly in my way. And when she, when I got to the point where my f- humanity was starting to fray at the edges, she was still right there. And so unfortunately, and I'm not proud of it, but I'm not ashamed of it either because it just doesn't seem like me anymore. When she would get in my face, I would attack her. I would hit her. I would bite her. I would throw her against the wall. I would break things and I would scare her. But, um, she would scare me too. I mean, it was a really toxic, toxic life that I led. We should explain that you're you're a pretty nice guy now. I try to be. Yeah. It's been my experience. Yeah, I mean, I you I'm dress not, nice and uh, yeah, clean. I've I've changed quite a bit. Um, you know, I don't think I would have made it. I, I to be frank, I if something very dramatic hadn't have happened to to write my course, I don't. It's not that I think I would have been. At this point, I would have been some kind of angry, toxic adult. I think I probably would have been dead. I don't think I would have made it. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedian and author Moshe Kasher. His memoir is called Kasher in the Rye, the true tale of a white boy from Oakland who became a drug addict, criminal, mental patient, and then turned 16. We spoke last year. The book's out in paperback next week. It was actually a translator 
that was um, sort of one of the instigators of the change in your life. My One of my great pleasures as a youth uh, in rehab, because I, I, at some point I went to rehab. When I, well, uh, when I was 13, I went to my first rehab. And when I was uh, 15, I went to my second and my third. And I went to these to mental hospitals and I was in, I, all, all this kind of stuff. Uh, one of the things that I took the greatest pleasure in was finding a way to find a chink in the armor of the uh, veneer of professionalism in the adults that were surrounding me. Because as you remember, I just hated adults. And I would poke my finger into that little chink in the armor, rip it open, and then my victory came when an adult would scream at me. When I had a therapist or an interpreter say, you know, you... I thought I won. You know what I mean? And uh, so I would do that all the time. I would just crack every... I was like sort of Matt Damon in the uh, in the Goodwill Hunting. Uh, you know, I would You're cra- sort of like... I mean, I know what you're talking about. You're you're like bringing... You're bringing them... I mean, I don't want to say down to your level, but it, what it's about is about making them not be... If they're yelling at you, then they're not the boss of you. That's right. Yeah. They're always telling me what to do. They're always thinking that they know better than me and if i could get them to scream at me i would just think well see if you're yelling at each other then you're peers yeah that's right so you had uh, you had one translator that um didn't quit and what i thought was interesting about him was that you could kind of tell that there was something about this dude that you could relate to sure which i mean it's funny to say it but if you're the kid of deaf parents that is growing up white in a you know uh um, in a in a uh a city where almost all the other kids are not white and you know on all the other crazy circumstances that you had as a teenager um just like the idea of seeing an adult and thinking like hey I can kind of relate to that person sure like that is actually really significant. <laughs> and actually, when you're in rehab and you're um, a patient in rehab, you do also start to identify with the. There are different. There are two different categories of counselors. There are the people that are clinicians who went to school and have a degree, and there are people who are themselves in recovery. And you can tell the difference. They're, they have a different tone and a different affect, and you relate to the ones. It's not that you love them. You just go, those are like more my people. These are people that themselves have had trials and tribulations, and these are people that learned about people with trials and tribulations. So Mike had that vibe about him, you know, and he also had two deaf parents. I knew that. He was like me in that way. And he, um, I got kicked out, you know, and my mom left with me, you know, in support of me. They they said that she could stay, but she she said, you know, if you can't help my son, he's the one that needs help, and you're kicking him out. You know, I can't be here either. And she walked out, and the interpreter walked out because he had nothing left to interpret. And he did. He pulled me aside, and he said, um, in a in a severe violation of that prime directive, um, uh, he said, you know, I'm I'm in recovery. I I, I used to be an alcoholic too. And he's like, you know, I know you're angry and I know you think that you're a bad person, but you're not a bad person. You're sick. And uh, and I got well and you can too. And um, he said, you know, there'll come a time in your life when you're going to have to walk away from this life or you're never going to make it out. And um, and he gave me a hug, which is very inappropriate. And, 
at, for an interpreter to do, but it was definitely a moment of a of a window of of understanding opening in my life where I I thought here's this guy he's like me deaf parents he's a he, you know he's a he's a an alcoholic and a drug addict like me and he's this cool guy and I relate to him and it was really one of the first times I found an adult who I felt a kindred spirit with. Now I'll say that the reason I'm able to so flagrantly tell you this story. Uh, because he would be fi- fired. He would have been fired if I told this story publicly about him violating the code of ethics is that Mike st- started drinking again years and years later and he died. Uh, he died of alcoholism. Um, and so, you know, he was like a little, a little, um, he was a great guy, but he was also a person that definitely was a, 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 I don't know, a guardian angel or something, some weird, he had some weird part to play in my life that allowed me to take that right turn that he suggested. Something that you quote him saying in the book that um, I thought was really powerful in that, just in that little interaction, it was a really little interaction. After he signed to your mom, are you going to snitch on me? Yeah, right. Um, Was he said, you know, you are going to have to walk alone. Yeah. You one of the most familiar tropes in rehab for anybody that's ever been in an adolescent rehab or maybe in an adult rehab too. I've never been to one. Um, is they just tell you, they grind you and say you have to get rid of your friends. You won't make it unless you get rid of your play, play things, play uh, friends and play places or something, some playgrounds, play things and uh, playmates. That's right. Um, and you have to get rid of those things. And I just thought, I would ne- I'll never do that. I'll never turn my back on this group of kids who are the only people who have ever understood me. The only people, this group of lost boys is the only group of kids that I've ever found that, you know, that I related to. My whole world, like you were, we were talking about earlier, was just to hang out with these kids. And I go to rehab and these strange adult, these strangers who are adults are telling me, you know, the most important thing in your life, walk away from it. And I just thought, you know, I'll never do that. Even though as the circumstances started to wind down and, and sing, you know, my friends became violent towards me and towards each other. We were stealing from each other and people were beating each other up and betraying each other and stealing things from their. I mean, it was a terrible group of people, but it was still all that I had. And I just thought, never, I will never do this. And I think like eventually there came a time because of, you know, information I received partially from this guy, Mike Hicks, and partially from my brain starting to mature into a a small bit of adulthood. You know, I was becoming almost 16 years old. And so I was starting to have a more of a self-identity and understand a a little bit of zooming out on my own life and sort of seeing what was happening. I thought I have to, I have to go my own way. Um, And then that's the go your own way song started to play (laughs) and credits rolled. (laughs) Well, Moshe, thank you so much for taking this time to be on Bullseye. It was it was really great to have you. Thank you for having me. Moshe Kasher's memoir is Kasher in the Rye, the true tale of a white boy from Oakland who became a drug addict, criminal, mental patient, and then turned 16. It's out in paperback next week. If you want to hear more of my conversation with Moshe Kasher, you can hear it on our website, MaximumFun.org. You'll hear more stories about misadventures with illegal drugs and other stuff that we are not legally allowed to air on the radio. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Latif the Truth Speaker is an MC, an Oakland native, and a founding member of the hip-hop collective and record label Soul Sides. The crew formed at the University of California at Davis. The members included DJ Shadow, Lyrics Born, and the duo Black Alicious. In the mid-90s, Soul Sides took up a new name, Quantum Projects. 
Latif has performed with a bunch of groups from that collective and appeared on countless singles. He's also released his own solo album. It's called Firewire. When he was a kid, Latif heard a song that changed his life, Cloudburst, as performed by the jazz vocal group Lambert, Hendrix, and Ross. Latif says that it's all thanks to his dad. As early as I can remember, I'd be in the car with him, and he'd be listening to stuff like that. Jazz, especially kind of jazz percussionists and jazz scatters, jazz vocalists, and it was probably kind of strange hearing a five-year-old just say the words to that song. I was blue and I was always wearing a frown, because my gal had turned me down. Then we met and you met I knew from the first you were... The structure of the song is almost like a underground rap song. There's the, the chorus that comes in at the top, which is very melodic. And then it goes into one long verse. Dun, 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 dun. Hey, baby, I'm gonna tell you about your love and you're kissing and you're hugging and you're sweet and you're pretty, baby. I want me satisfied till you play, here comes the bride. Listen to me, baby, and I don't mean maybe listen to my story. It's a remedy, too. I want to find a way to tell you that I really go for you. I hope you believe me, baby, because I certainly do. Because you're telling me, really, really, silly, when you tell me that you probably got a kind of crush on me. It moves me, moves me. How divine can one woman be? Oh, little darling, I'm really falling. You got me goofy and gay. I'm gonna get carried away. Just think you're gonna be mine someday. Oh, let's spin a little pack, a little stop, a little spark, a little live, a little a little maybe, a little a little baby. Every time you always so near, nobody loves me like you, dear. You can tell he had it memorized, but it's almost, he moves inside of the beat really um, organically. It's a love song, but it has a real attitude to it. Find a little girl to make you love your life. Don't ever leave that you're flipping it and really want to ruin the plot. Light as a breeze through the trees, boy. Pleasant as one from a breeze, boy. Then there's a hook. Then there's another little, like, just four bar. Take a look at me, boy. Take another look, take another look, take another look, take another look. It's just like one long verse, hook, short little bridge, hook. Awesome. It's like an underground rap song. A lot of people say, oh, hip-hop started in the 80s or hip-hop started in the 70s. And that song was recorded in 1959. But I made the connection very, very early between hip-hop and and what they did and what jazz scatters in general did, shadowing instruments and horns. It just opened up for me the realms of possibility as far as what you could do vocally and what was possible and how it is that You didn't have to limit yourself. You could sing. You could do rapid fire percussion. You could make the song a love song and have it still have that kind of a a swagger, that kind of an attitude to it where it was fun, upbeat, honest, all of those things. And then I think still today, you know, I listen to it and I hear 
I hear new things and hear new ideas and hear things that I'd like to try. So I think that that particular song affected me early and uh, it still affects me now today. Changed my life really. Latif the Truth Speaker on the song that changed his life, Cloudburst by Lambert Hendrickson Ross. Latif's solo album is called Firewire. After a break, my conversation with Daniel Lindsay and T.J. Martin. They're the directors of the Oscar-winning documentary Undefeated, which just came out on DVD. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio International. Hey, everybody. My name is Dave Shumka. And I'm Graham Clark. And we are the hosts of a show called Stop Podcasting Yourself right here on the MaximumFun.org network. We're the first ever Canadian podcast to win a Canadian Comedy Award for Best Podcast. I think we went with that too early. I think we seem braggy. (laughs) It's a weekly comedy show, a very easygoing chat between Dave, myself, a guest. We'll talk about things that we've overheard during the week and also Hulk Hogan. Stop podcasting yourself. Head over to MaximumFun.org to download an episode today. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Last year, I was at a taping of the great Slate podcast, Hang Up and Listen. My friend Mike Pesco, one of the hosts, made a very bold claim. He said he'd just seen a movie called Undefeated and that it was the best sports documentary he had ever seen. When he said that, as you can imagine, there was a murmur from the crowd, but he cut it off. Yes, he said, better than hoop dreams. At the time, I will be honest with you, it sounded like the ravings of a madman. And, you know, maybe it was the ravings of a madman, but I sure am glad that I made a note to look up a movie called Undefeated. It's a documentary about a high school football team in North Memphis called the Manassas Tigers. For decades, it was a terrible, terrible team. Sometimes with so few players, guys had to play offense and defense out of necessity. It was transformed slowly over years of work from a volunteer coach named Bill Courtney and a generation of players energized by his leadership. Courtney says that there's a story under every helmet, and the film focuses on a few of those stories as well as Courtney's own. My guests on the show are Dan Lindsay and T.J. Martin, the directors of the film, who lived in Memphis for nine months while they were shooting over 500 hours of footage, which they then used to make me cry about four different times over the film's two hours or so. I talked to them last year, just after the film had won an Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. After a long wait, the film is finally out on DVD, and it's also available on Netflix Instant. Gentlemen, uh, welcome to Bullseye. Thank you very much for having us. You guys originally went to Memphis to check out the story of one of the players on this team, a kid named O.C. Um, At the time, a kid named O.C., now a young man named O.C. Um, Tell me a little bit about what you knew about him when you went down there and just what you knew about what you were heading down to check out. Well, our producer, Rich Middlemiss, found an article uh, in the Memphis Commercial Appeal, which is the the paper there, and it was it detailed how OC had kind of come onto the recruiting scene, uh, college recruiting scene, kind of out of nowhere as a result of this YouTube video that uh, one of his coaches had posted up online, and suddenly he was getting all of these all of this attention from Division One colleges, and his grades weren't exactly in the best shape, and so the 
coaches had conspired to, you know, get him a tutor, try and raise his grades so he could take advantage of this opportunity. Uh, but they couldn't find a tutor that would go into his neighborhood at night. And so, um, Bill Courtney, the volunteer coach and Mike Ray, the other coach decided, well, he can just live with Mike, you know, and a tutor will come to his house. So the, what was interesting in the article to us was OC being a 16 year old kid at the time being kind of shuttled between these two disparate worlds. One of the coach, Mike lives in a very affluent area of North Memphis of Memphis and OC lives uh, with his grandmother in North Memphis. And so he was kind of being shuttled between these two disparate worlds. And and that was interesting to us uh, enough to get us to go to Memphis and just meet this guy and see what this world looked like. Um, And then it was there that we met coach Bill Courtney heard about the history of Manassas and the program there, and that was kind of when we decided to shift our focus. So when you got to this school, I think there's this thing about making a, a, a documentary film, which is something that uh, uh, the great Ira Glass, I think, probably discovered when he made a TV version of This American Life, which is one of the tricky things about documenting something in film form is that you have to be there as it happens or else it's boring, mm-hmm. you know, because otherwise all you can do is uh, is try and zoom into and out of photographs of something Ken Burns style, you know, yeah. which is okay, but it's not that great. Yeah. You know, while someone talks about it in voiceover, right? And I think you, maybe you discovered that uh, some of the drama of O.C.'s story had already occurred. It was what had happened in that article that sent you there. It's actually the conversation me and Rich had on the flight back. Um, You know, we we were like, it's really compelling. And there are going to be interesting things that are going to happen to him over the course of this year. But the main, you know, the main thing of this story has already unfolded. And we were, we all three of us talked and said, but you know, what's really interesting is what Bill has done um, at the school. And that this is the senior year for a group of kids that really were the, the the class that turned it around. And we thought, okay, well, there's at least a premise. And Bill told us a lot of really interesting anecdotes of things that had happened in the past. And that was kind of when we said, man, if we just showed up, if we could capture one or two of those types of things in front of the camera – you know, we and, and with the spine of the season, you know, we could have a, a somewhat interesting film. We just never in a million years could have predicted what would transpire over the year, uh, over yeah. the course of that season, and then how interconnected um, those storylines would end up being. I don't know if you want to tell them about the the turtles. Yeah, thing. I mean, we just w- when we went down to meet OC, we were still looking. We wanted to find another player that could juxtapose OC's storyline. Like, who is the kid on the team that's doing everything right, uh, but isn't doesn't have the physical. Um, you know, stature and the athletic prowess to actually go off to play Division One. So, so we found money, this kind of classic overachiever, and we went over to his house and and uh, or met him there and said, you know, we're going to put a mic on you and we just want to film and put a mic on him. And I said, okay, show me around your house. And the first thing he did was he goes, well, over on the side here, I have my pet turtles. That's my favorite animal, actually, because it's like turtles is like a human being to me because it's like. They gotta be hard on the outside, and they, but they really soft on the inside. Just look at at the texture of them. See, oh, this is like a human. On the outside, everybody wanna be hard and show their strength, but on the inside, it's like they just all flimsy and you know, just skin and bones. He clearly was so thoughtful and self-aware of his life and um, and uh, and had a goal to get 
out of Memphis. And so that just as a character, you know, that was either going to happen for him or it wasn't. And that was, that's what we, I mean, immediately kind of latched onto him and said, let's follow this guy. That was kind of where we saw that here's a unique world where so far the individuals that we're meeting are very emotionally and honest in front of the camera and candid in front of the camera. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are Daniel Lindsay and TJ Martin. They're the directors of the sports documentary Undefeated. We spoke last year shortly after the film won an Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. Undefeated is now out on DVD. I want to play a clip of uh, Coach Courtney, and this is him relatively early on in the movie, basically just talking about the stuff that has gone down on the team just in the first, like, I think it's probably three, four weeks of uh, of the season that you guys cover in the film. Let's see here. Starting right guard shot, no longer in school. Starting will linebacker shot, no longer in school. Two players fighting right in front of the coach when he's trying to make things work out. Starting center arrested for shooting somebody in the face with a BB gun. Most coaches, that would be pretty much a career's worth of crap to deal with. I think that sums up the last two weeks for me. And you know what? I know damn good and well what I sign up for every year. And I keep coming back because I love this program and I feel very responsible to make sure that you guys have a, a, a football season that you can be proud of. And I will kill myself to make that happen. This is our season. I don't care what happens. Describe how uh, this coach struck you when you first met him. <laughs> Uh, now I think he's the most charismatic man I've ever met. Then, uh, first thing I saw was a salesman. And I think I, it took me a little bit longer to warm up to Coach Bill than I think. Well, I, I also was on those two trips the first yeah. time. So you were the first time that you saw, you just saw when we were sending footage back to cut. Like, you were just seeing him on screen. He's literally a salesman. Yeah, well, he yeah. was a used car salesman. That's how he started out. And then he, um, and then he started, uh, he was a salesman for a lumber company. Love him or hate him, he does tend to kind of control the conversation. It's all earnest. It's all, it's just the nature of his, of his kind of his demeanor, you yeah. know, and, and, and people tend to listen and he, he's a natural born leader. That's the best way I can yeah. really describe him. And then, you know, also, you know, for, for people who haven't actually seen the film, just to give context, Bill is also from East Memphis, which is a much more fluent, predominantly white. And, you know, our story takes place in North Memphis, which is, like Dan said earlier, it's an underserved community that is predominantly black. So you have this volunteer coaches, you know, led by Bill, who is white, with an all-black team. So um, in terms of... And the, the, know, other, our, the other volunteer coaches are mostly white as mostly well. White. Mostly white, yeah. They're... Yeah. they're, they're from his, from his church or there his... It's a combination. combination yeah, Mike stuff, was yeah. his neighbor, you know, another guy he knew from church, another... Yeah, I mean, it's... And then, like, Coach Clark is his son, played on one of the junior yeah. teams. Um, so, yeah. I want to play this uh, clip of Coach Courtney. Um, he's talking um, relatively early on about um, dealing with... Uh, dealing with losing the character of a man is not measured in how he handles his wins but what he does with his failures and tonight we failed and everybody says when you get these inner city kids down they'll lay over and you'll beat them by 40 not us 
Everybody will say they're 0-1. They're going to fold up camp. They'll be 2-8 by the end of this thing. No! Not us. You walk with your chins up. I am proud to be a Manassas Tiger on this field night because my guys did lay down. They got heart. Now let's put our mind with our heart and our bodies and let's finish this thing this year. I mean, that's a really powerful, uh, that's a really powerful thing. Oh, extremely. I mean, it made, it it made, it helped us finish the film. Yeah. (laughs) There's something about hearing it from coach Courtney too, that, um, I found very powerful because he's not, um, um, you know, he's eloquent, but he's not, um, you know, Mario Cuomo or, (laughs) you know, Malcolm X or something. Cuomo and Malcolm X. I think that is a good group. (laughs) A couple couple of very eloquent speechifiers, right? You know, um, and I mean, there's there's something about him that feels like um, uh, that he's just a that he's just a guy who's has the guts to just be there and take care of business and do it. Yeah, I think. Well, he has a lot of pride, I think, too, and I think he wants to. You know, he wants to succeed and achieve in the things that he does. So when he does something, he does it all the way. I don't think he knows. I don't think he knows two speeds in some That's, ways. Yeah. Yeah. But I, what I think is interesting about him is he, I think he does recognize that about himself, but I think he also sees that in others. And he just always, it, like, it hurts him to see someone who has a lack of confidence. He wants to help find that confidence within them because he he truly genuinely believes that people can accomplish things if they just set their mind to it. And he's just, he's kind of a living, breathing testament to that. But he he really does see that in others. Well, guys, thanks for taking the time to be on Bullseye. Thank Thank you very very much. much. Dan Lindsay and TJ Martin's Oscar-winning documentary, Undefeated, is now available on DVD and on Netflix Instant. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Every week we close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. If you're a hip-hop fan, you know about the classic records that came out of Atlanta's Dungeon Family in the 1990s. Outkast's AT Aliens and Oquimini are among the best rap albums of the decade. Goody Mob's Still Standing and Soul Food aren't far behind. But I don't want to talk about Andre 3000 and Big Boy and CeeLo. This isn't about international superstars. My favorite record from the peak years of the Dungeon family, the late 90s, is by a guy who probably has a day job these days. His name is Witch Doctor, and the album is called A Swat Healing Ritual. Witch Doctor has an eccentric, talky flow, and his lyrics match that. He conflates Africa and the ATL, spitting about a strange mix of shamanic religion and street life. The SWAT in the title is Southwest Atlanta, and Witch Doctor's goal seems to be to veil the hood in a haze of the ancient. Her people watched her every move. 
I sit and watch. Damn, she makes me want to drool. Hip-hop is usually a singles genre. Albums are compilations of hits and would-be hits. Basically, incoherent piles of songs. A SWAT healing ritual is exactly the opposite. From the opening bars, it sets a strange and distinctive tone. It's street and mystical at the same time. There's no standout track, really, but the album hangs together tight, a 60-minute journey through the mind of a, of a truly unique talent. It's a little bit beautiful, a little angry, a little sad and lonely. Interludes bleed into tracks that barely have hooks. It's an experience as much as it is a collection of songs. What is the Dungeon Family and where does Witch Doctor fit in? The Dungeon Family, the DL. That's like a, uh, that's a mob, mob, goody mob, outcast, organized noise. That's the whole DL. There's a thousand others in the DL. I can keep naming, baby. You got to come with me. In some ways, I think the unabashed strangeness of a SWAT healing ritual makes it the ultimate Dungeon Family album. Unabashedly hood, unafraid to be mystical. We once booked Witch Doctor on the show for an interview, and he didn't show up. Maybe it's better that he remains a mystery. I had a dream, I came up on a that's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our senior producer is Nick White. Our intern is Thomas Madison. Our interstitial music is provided to us by Dan Wally. Our theme music is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Thanks to The Go Team and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. You can find this show and all past Bullseye shows for free at MaximumFun.org. You can also visit us on Twitter, at Bullseye, on Facebook and SoundCloud, where you can share segments with your friends. I guess that's about it. And remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.